I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Love Thy Neighbor. You can listen to the entire series right now only on Odyssey, where all of our episodes are available to binge. Before we begin... Just to note that this episode contains explicit, racist, and anti-Semitic language and descriptions of violence. This is Love Thy Neighbor. I'm Collier Meyerson. Episode 1, All Good. About a year and a half ago, in August 2020, I went to a retirement party for a cop. His name is Vinny Martinez. Vinny's been serving for 28 years. For 15 of those years, he's been the community affairs officer of New York City's 71st police precinct in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Crown Heights. Vinny's retirement party is taking place in a grand room at the Jewish Children's Museum on Eastern Parkway the European-style boulevard that runs right down the middle of Crown Heights. I've been around large groups of police before, but generally it's when they're in riot gear. The mood here was markedly different than I'm used to. There are close to 50 people here, Orthodox Jews, a few Black people, a whole lot of police officers, and a bunch of local political heavyweights. They're reverends of local churches, rabbis of local synagogues, even the NYPD commissioner, Dermot Shea. So many friends in the room, so many friends in the room. Good to see all of you. And of course, to uh, our guest of honor, Detective Vinny, who for many, many years, how many years you served this community? 28. 28 years. The evening's MC is Devorah Halberstam, the co-founder of the museum and a longtime friend and patron of the local precinct. All the member organizations that are in this room, and they're made up of many different faces here, that represent all different members of the community. We couldn't have more than 50, or the mayor said we get a $10,000 fine that we can't afford to pay. But our guys here are our heroes. So thank you for being here for them, because I cannot tell you how much it means. She warmly embraces every speaker as they step up to the mic. All of them thank her before beginning their sort of generic speeches about Vinny the neighborhood stalwart, how his openness and generosity and willingness to lend a hand are reflections of the neighborhood itself. And like a lot of local government functions, the talk quickly turns to the bigger, more nebulous idea of who we are as a community and what the neighborhood stands for. But when you have something going on in Crown Heights, you get everybody. Everybody comes out. And it, it just goes to show you the type of people that live here, they really, truly love this community. They, they love this neighborhood. And they all have the same common goal. And that is just to have a peaceful, beautiful community. Head's not in agreement. There's a kind of insistence in the room. You can really feel it. That everything in Crown Heights is 
all good. Other places might be a mess, but they got it figured out in Crown Heights. Just ask Devorah Halberstam. This neighborhood, I watch out for my brothers and sisters, big time. Everybody matters to me. When I say that, I truly mean it. For Devorah, it's a real point of pride that the communities get along so well and care so much for each other, to the extent that she doesn't even see a need to identify people by their race. I hate labels. Yeah. I hate being branded. I even resent saying my next-door neighbors are black. And I don't, I don't want people to think of me as, oh, she's the Jewish white woman. I mean, you think that's, like, offensive to me. Well, it's not offensive. I love who I am and my Jewish identity I'm proud of, but we're part of the human race. When the speeches come to an end, the black city reps hobnob with the police leadership. The Jewish community leaders have a laugh with the borough president and future mayor, Eric Adams. I say goodbye to Devorah and step outside onto Eastern Parkway the street that serves as a kind of dividing line between two of the biggest communities in Crown Heights. There's plenty of crossover, but Black and Afro-Caribbean Americans mostly live on the north side. And a specific group of Hasidic Jews known as Chabad Lubavitch tend to make their lives on the south side. Okay, a bit of an explanation of some terminology. Like many other Orthodox Jews, Hasidim eat kosher food, And on the Sabbath, they don't use technology or work. But what differentiates the Hasidic movement is an emphasis on joy and worship, the prominence of mystical thought, and the relationship to their Rebbe. And there are a few Hasidic Jewish communities spread across New York City. The Chabad Lubavitch are just one of them. But it's one of the most well-known movements, partly because of their outreach to less observant Jews. If you're ever walking down the street in New York City and a guy in a dark suit with white fringes dangling from his shirt and a wide-brimmed hat approaches and asks if you're Jewish... Good afternoon, sir. Are you Jewish? Do any of you Jewish by any chance? Excuse me, sir. Are you Jewish? You can pretty much bet he's a member of Chabad. Over the course of this podcast, we and the people we talk to will often use Hasidic, Chabad, and Lubavitch interchangeably. There are Chabad centers in more than 100 countries around the world, but the movement's headquarters, their Mecca, is right here where I'm standing, off Kingston Avenue at 770 Eastern Parkway. The place is so famous, most people refer to it by the number alone, 770. On a regular day, if you're walking down the surrounding blocks, you'll see young students rushing off to study Torah. And English isn't the only language you'll hear. You'll hear passers-by speaking Hebrew and Yiddish. There are almost no secular shops here. It's kosher everything. Kosher coffee shops, a chic kosher pizza joint, and kosher bakeries. One in particular on Kingston Avenue is often playing Jewish music you can hear as you walk by. Cross Eastern Parkway to the north side, and it's a predominantly black neighborhood, with a lot of Afro-Caribbean Americans from countries like Jamaica, Trinidad, and St. Vincent. Walk around these blocks, and you hear reggae and dance hall coming from open windows. There are Caribbean bakeries and restaurants and groceries where you can buy roti and ground provisions like yams, cassava, and dashim. I lived in Crown Heights for eight years, from 2010 to 2018. And this is what I showed off when my friends came to visit. This part of Brooklyn that hadn't yet been totally gentrified, where these two unique communities existed shoulder to shoulder. 
I'd take my friends to Gumbo's Chaimasha Bakery for chocolate-infused bagels on Kingston, and then to Trinidad Golden Place on Nostrand Avenue for doubles. I'd say some trite thing about how this actually feels like the multi-culti melting pot New York that you see in books and movies. And in a way, it was true, sort of. There was something kind of magical about the place. But it was also true that if you paid close attention, you'd be aware of the animosity running just below the surface, the sense of mistrust. A lot of the Hasidim were racist. A lot of the black people in the neighborhood were anti-Semitic. And there were tense relationships with the police. All of that is still here today, which is why I'm so surprised listening to these speeches at Detective Vinny's party. Because we all get along. This is a very diversified crowd here. And sometimes it's, it's not easy to deal with that. And all different religions, all different ethnicities, I brought everybody together. You know, some other places, it's not like this. A few blocks from the museum where Vinny's party was held, on the corner of President Street and Utica Avenue, an accident took place just over 30 years ago. There are tragic accidents in New York every day. But this one, on this day in 1991, sparked something completely out of the ordinary. That evening, a station wagon driven by a Hasidic man careened onto the sidewalk, The car was part of a motorcade that was transporting the community's spiritual leader, or as he's known to the Lubavitchers, the Rebbe. And when the out-of-control vehicle finally came to a crashing stop, two young Caribbean-American kids were pinned beneath it. One of them, a boy named Gavin Cato, was killed, and his cousin Angela survived but was badly maimed. The violence started at dusk. Dozens of demonstrators vented their anger with bottles and rocks that kept police and residents running and ducking. Later that same evening, a black teenage boy stabbed an Orthodox Jew named Yankel Rosenbaum. Within minutes, another innocent victim was killed. A young man was stabbed to death. His funeral was held in... The days of upheaval that followed would come to be known as the Crown Heights Riot. The honorist continues here in Crown Heights. Stores were ransacked. They were rocking the car. They were throwing things. I got hit in the hand with a a bat. Police and riot gear filled the streets. The Jews were not fighting. Get it straight. Maybe they're right. We should have fought. We're just nice people. Shots were fired from a rooftop. Molotov cocktails were thrown. Innocent people were beaten. Uh, As I speak now even, I can see a plume of smoke rising from northern end of Utica Avenue, closer to Union Street. Jewish and black neighbors in the streets facing off with the police, the mayor pleading for peace. The rocks and bottles rained down periodically, even one hitting the mayor's car at one point, damaging the roof, while he pleaded on the steps for calm. It is a mistake for anyone to believe that an accidental death can be used as an excuse to loot, to injure, or to kill. But riots are never just about one discrete incident. And that's what we're looking to explore in this show. What happened before, during, and after those four days in August? We want to zoom out, examine the anatomy of a riot, and put what happened into a much larger context. 
The Crown Heights riot is a key that can help us unlock and understand so many of our modern dilemmas. From police violence and racism to the persistence of anti-Semitism. It cast a decades-long shadow over New York and New Yorkers, including me. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. At the time of the Crown Heights riot, I was six years old, growing up in New York City. So uh, Chris was arrested. He was beaten up by a cop at uh, our cops in Crown Heights when he was there as an independent photojournalist. This is my dad, James Meyerson. He's a civil rights lawyer. And uh, I represented him in a civil suit after he had been arrested. Uh, We sued the city and some cops for a false arrest and for having subjected him to a pretty serious beating. And then when we got down to Utica Avenue, I was taking pictures, and I was taking pictures of the police officers where they were very much afraid. At that Chris was time, freelancing for the Amsterdam News, New York's leading black newspaper, and he lived nearby. And we said we had our press pass, and... Um, Cops said, we don't give a F who you are. You can't cross. But we're having the press credential. You can go wherever you're supposed to go, wherever you want to go. And all of a sudden... So Chris is in the standoff with the cops who won't let him cross the street to document what's going on. He watches as a friend of his gets arrested. He sees another guy getting beaten up. He listened. I started to take pictures. All of a sudden, I felt like rain came on top of me. Detective, undercover detectives just start beating me. And um, it was sad because um, I've never experienced getting beat by police whatsoever. And they started beating me and um, broke up my cameras. And um, I remember all my equipment was gone. A few days later, Chris's family called my dad. The case was settled because it was so blatantly obvious what they did that the city wasn't uh, inclined to litigate the case on the merits because there were no merits. Um, I was suing the city and police officers 
on behalf of black people who were getting beaten up. I was this person in between these two warring sides. I've thought about Chris Griffith a lot over the years. In a way, he's part of why I wanted to go back and take a closer look at the riot and why it happened. It's not like this was an unknown story. The car crash and the riot that followed were national news. And over the years, there have been a ton of panels and editorials remembering and reminding the public of what happened. But still, as a journalist who's covered race and politics for years, I've never been able to shake the idea that what happened in Crown Heights is more complicated than the story that's been told to us, especially in the immediate aftermath. The story that a tragic accident set off four days of rioting. Jews were victims of uncontrolled black rage and anti-Semitism. And David Dinkins, the first black mayor in the history of New York, just sat by and let it happen. Totally. I mean, you have to understand that Giuliani was elected against Dinkins because there was a effort on his part to blame Dinkins for Crown Heights. Most people agree that David Dinkins lost his mayoral re-election campaign to Rudolph Giuliani, in large part because of his response during those four days in Crown Heights. And to propose that he orchestrated a pro- pogrom in Crown Heights by allowing black people to run wild and kill Jews in the Crown Heights community. And it was a brutal brutal, raw political campaign and successful for Giuliani. He won the election. He painted Dinkins and, by implication, black people as collectively anti-Semitic people. I remember when we were, when I was growing up, in the 90s, it was like, I felt like we were rich or something, which I know. <laughs> I know know we weren't, but, like, you had case after case after case, these big cases. Every day you were representing somebody who was getting beaten by the cops or— When when Giuliani was elected, uh, police misconduct became even more intense and more acceptable and practiced. It just increased the amount of work that we had to undertake to push back against the racism being practiced by the police against young black people with the encouragement of Giuliani as the mayor. That's how the Crown Heights riot was basically understood in my household growing up. The background conversations were always about fighting back against inequality and state violence to make sure that the city paid for the way it treated its black residents. And my dad was seeing in real time how policing evolved after those four days. But that's definitely not how most people across New York interpreted things. Often, people can't even agree on the language we use to talk about those four days in August. Like, even the term riot is fraught. Whether you're talking about Crown Heights or Watts or any number of similar conflicts in America... You know, the, the throwing of Molotov cocktails and rocks and bottles at police and the, and the kind of looting and general property destruction uh, was rooted in, in, in much of the same grievances as the mainstream civil rights movement. Yale professor Elizabeth Hinton recently wrote a book called America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellions Since the 1960s. You know, these acts were about uh, 
full inclusion and participation in American society. They were, you know, a call for jobs, a call for equal education opportunities, a call for decent housing. She's saying that using the word riot can reinforce this deeply entrenched idea that Black people are out of control. But many don't appreciate alternative terms such as uprising, like Mati Seligson, a member of Chabad. I'll be very blunt about it. I think that's anti-Semitic. Oh, interesting. Apologist at its core. Some people refer to it as a pogrom. Yes, like Rudolph Giuliani, I think, did. And a lot of the victims. Yes. This is probably one of the only um, anti-Semitic riots in the history of the United States. Uh Uh-huh. To start explaining this and giving causes is like, is like doing that with anything, with any bigotry, with racism, with any other phobia. And, and you know, explaining it away that there's, oh, there, there's some other reason for the cause. Mm-hmm. When, when you collectively blame a community or, or bring violence to try to redefine that and excuse that in some way, is itself anti-Semitism. It signals to them that the violence and anti-Semitism was somehow justified. When Mati said it, it felt like he was calling me anti-Semitic. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized his perspective was just different. For now, though, we'll refer to it as a riot, not because that feels neutral exactly, but because that's how people in the neighborhood have generally talked about it. I wanted to really hear where everyone was coming from so we could come to a new understanding of who we are to each other, even me to my own family. I was born at Long Island Jewish Hospital to a woman named Ellen, a white Jew from Long Island. I only met her once, when I was about 25. She didn't know who my biological father was. It was a one-night stand. I just know he's black, for obvious reasons. James and Deidre, who you're hearing from today, adopted me and took me home when I was just three days old. They're also Black and Jewish. But it's flipped. My father's a white Jew, and my mother's Black. They're my parents. Growing up, I'd never known anything or anyone else. What do you think that this pro- I'm trying to achieve with this project by looking into a Jewish and Black conflagration? in New York City. You are a combination of of these of these different communities in that are at, have been are will be at war and you're a person that's trying to explore what that means for you and what I've decided in in my involvement in these things what it means for me. You're living in a city that is definitely a melting pot. That's my mom, Deidre. And you're still trying to figure out, I think, a lot of your identity. And I think that by delving into this, you're exploring that some more. I'm happy to see it. But I'm not surprised that you're doing it or that you found this story compelling. My parents met seven years before I was born. We were both working at the NAACP. Yeah. And then what happened, Mom? Well, he would 
say to, to my secretary, uh, I'd like to meet her. One thing led to another, and boom. And between the time we met and got married, it was just five months. Three or five. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was three, but... I'll... Yeah, but then you think our anniversary is the 24th. And it is. No, it's the 28th. <laughs> okay. I'd always felt like I was kind of a legacy child of the civil rights movement, both in body with a white dad and a black mom, and because they met at America's most prominent civil rights institution. Growing up, I went to other legacy black institutions like the Dance Theater of Harlem and the Harlem School of the Arts. But I didn't live in Harlem. I grew up just south of there on the Upper West Side, in a well-to-do community with a big Jewish population. Back then, it was a different style of Judaism from Crown Heights, way less observing Shabbat and keeping kosher, and way more Seinfeld jokes and Zabar's babka with a Grace papaya hot dog for dessert. There are about 70,000 Jews who live in those three square miles alone. It's a lot. And so I concentrated on developing a Jewish identity to fit in. The legendary civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois, who co-founded the NAACP where my parents met 63 years later, famously wrote in his autobiography about something called double consciousness. It's this idea that Black Americans can see ourselves as we are, but we can also see ourselves through the lens of white supremacy, meaning we have the ability to see ourselves as white people see us. I thought being Jewish on the liberal Upper West Side with a proximity to whiteness would be my shield against racism. Even though I wasn't white, I was Jewish. But it turns out that really wasn't always the case. Walking near Central Park with my dad as a little girl, police officers would suspiciously slow down and stare at us. And I could sense their confusion or judgment. At Jewish holidays with my white relatives, people would make racist jokes, unbothered by my presence or forgetting altogether. Sometimes my blackness was what people focused on. Other times, it went unnoticed. And as for my Jewishness, so many white Jews I encountered wanted to know how I could be Jewish, and they were always searching for a way to strip me of it. Did I get bat mitzvahed? Did I observe the high holidays? Or some people didn't believe me. Once at a Hanukkah party I threw at my house, a guest berated me at some point saying, you're Indian or something. You're not Jewish. Which was weird because there he was attending a Hanukkah party in my home. But the most vexing, I think, was when people asked if my mother was Jewish. I never knew how to answer. In traditional Judaism, if your mother's Jewish, it means you are. My biological mother was Jewish, but my adoptive one wasn't. And I knew when people were asking me if my Black adoptive mother was Jewish, what they were really trying to tell me, not so subtly, was that I wasn't Jewish. So a lot of times I felt really confused about whether I was a Jew or not. Do you think your upbringing was unusual? Um, yes. In what way? Well, there just weren't a lot of kids who were... Black and Jewish. And do you think that Crown Heights is a reflection? The war, the war of Crown Heights is a reflection of the tension in war in yourself. <laughs> oh my God. No, seriously. Can you hear my eyes rolling into the back of my head here at my dad? 
so annoying. But then I stripped back the cheesy layers of his delivery, and I realized, begrudgingly, that he was right. Why, why talk about Crown Heights 30 years later? Except that it represents something of import in a larger community level, but it also reflects the tension in yourself about the identities who you are. It was a fair question from my dad. It's not like my secular Jewish story maps perfectly onto what happened in Crown Heights. I'm not Caribbean-American. The black food I grew up on were collard greens and black-eyed peas, not cassava and doubles. But there are obvious parallels. My immediate reaction is to roll my eyes when my dad starts using language like, the war of Crown Heights is a reflection of the war in myself. But I think that there's a lot I can learn from that relationship, or lack thereof, to teach me about myself and about my family and my city. I'm not a particularly religious Jew, but I married a guy who is. Negotiating that is a podcast for another time. But I think that part of why I'm able to be in that kind of relationship is because I'm still interested in doing what my dad wanted to do to honestly examine the history so we can imagine a better way forward. What happened in Crown Heights can't be distilled into the neat race war narrative that it's often been stuffed into. It's more complicated than that. And the reckoning with what happened must be too. Next time on Love Thy Neighbor. In Brooklyn live peoples from the far corners of the earth. Next to me, you had Mr. Ramsey from Jamaica. Living side by side without prejudices or hate. Next to Mr. Ramsey, you had Velma from Trinidad. Uh-huh. Or in Brooklyn, the brotherhood of man is a reality instead of a myth. The Lubavitch community largely came as Holocaust refugees. This is the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York City. This is a crime-menaced neighborhood. Crown Heights in Brooklyn is a changing urban neighborhood. Blacks moved in, whites moved out. Love Thy Neighbor is hosted by me, Collier Meyerson. The show was written by Noah Remnick and myself. Just Jupiter is our producer, and Justine Daum is our managing producer. Production assistance and research by Yinka Rickford Angwin. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Joel Lovell is our editor. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Original music is by Will Johnson. Our engineers are Davey Sumner and Jason Richards. Our show art, which includes a David Burns photo from the Associated Press, was designed by Kurt Courtney, Josefina Francis, and Lauren Vieira at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Leela Day, Jasmine Hughes, Mordechai Lightstone, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Sandra Ellen, Grace Chen, Moira Curran, and Kadim Jang. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Day Rocher and Katie Ali Mohammadi and Vernissa Washington at Donaldson Caliph Perez. This show is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, 
Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Love Thy Neighbor, you can listen to the next episode and the rest of the series right now exclusively on Odyssey. Find all the podcasts and audio that matter to you. Download Odyssey from the App Store or Google Play today. Thanks for listening.